believe it or not, 2020 was not the worst election in the history of the United States. I'm Bert Cohen. With your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. With all its intensity built on millions of citizens emotionally insisting that outright lies are the truth, with deadly violence and the widespread threats of violence somehow being normalized, certainly there's never been an American election as bad as 2020, right? Wrong. The Trumpist senators and House members look back to the election of 1876 as they cite precedents to effectively nullify the will of the people and reverse an election. Our guest today, historian William Hoagland, uh, is, has a new article at his blog, Hoagland's Bad History. I love the title. The title of the article is The Worst Election in the History of the United States. It's not 2020. He writes that on Election Day, 1876, everything that a lot of people were afraid would happen on Election Day 2020 really did happen. It was a nightmare that jump-started what were to be many decades of violent racism known as Jim Crow. Elections in the United States are supposed to be our shining glory, the peaceful transfer of power dictated only by the public will, with Trump petulantly, petulantly insisting that he won and Biden did not, the election of 2020 is not exactly an example of that. In the midst of the worst pandemic since 1918, people's everyday blood pressure from coast to coast has been raised from the 24-7 tension. How could there be a worse election? Those radical right-wingers today who seek to overturn the election do cite the 1876 election as a precedent for their actions. Why is that? Stay tuned. Our guest, William Hoagland, may be best known as the author of the narrative history trilogy, Wild Early Republic, the Whiskey Rebellion, Declaration, and Autumn of the Black Snakes, as well as the expository work Founding Finance and a collection of essays, Inventing American History. John Furling of the University of West Virginia has called Hoagland one of the best historians of early America. Uh, in his books, Unearthed Stories of Founding Conflicts that are little discussed precisely because they're elemental, sometimes to uncomfortable degrees. That's history. Challenging, commonly held views of the founding period. Hoagland has published essays on history, music, and politics at the Atlantic Monthly, Alternate Salon, The New York Times, Boston Review, Huffington Post, Lapham's Quarterly, and elsewhere. His regularly published blog, as I say, is called Bad History, where the strangely reassuring meets the deeply unsettling. Well, with that introduction, thanks for being with us, uh, Bill Hoagland. Well, thanks for having me on. While noting that the the sheer mad foolishness of presidential behavior are unparalleled and thus impossible to contextualize your words. The electoral system has not yet collapsed. You say, quote, the worst election was in 1876 in which it, quote, did collapse in corruption, in violence, and in evil with horrifying long-range effects, end of quote. As I'm guessing, we have very few 19th century historians now listening Set the electoral and political context as it was in 1876 for us, please. Well, the context uh, which Senator Cruz has raised as a possible precedent for 
his efforts to actually overturn this election, uh, 2020 election. Uh, the context was uh, was complicated because it was, I mean, 1876. Okay, let's remember it's post post Civil War, um, and the country was was in a very particular state at that time. I mean, you've got troops still, U.S. troops still in some southern states to enforce uh, to enforce racial equality there in government and daily life, both. Right which was a completely new situation for those states which had been confederated to uh, perpetuate the institution of slavery, now overcome. Um, and that's a very tense situation, but it's a few years in, and um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of white America, not just the South, but also the North, was, uh, you know, to put it kind of bluntly and broad stroke it a bit, kind of sick of the situation, mm-hmm. no longer as committed as they were to, uh, had been, or some of them had been, to really to reconstruction as it was called. Um, and so you have this election where it seems on, on the one hand, it's funny. It's a funny election because it seems boring. If you look at it from a certain angle, you've got uh, Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes mm-hmm. of Ohio and Samuel J. Tilden of New York going up against each other. Hayes, the Republican Tilden, the Democrat, a Northern Democrat. Uh, and that's an interesting person to be at that moment. Yeah. because, Of course, the Democratic Party was associated with, uh, closely associated with the Confederacy, but yes. Northern Democrats have been in a strange situation for a long time. Um, Tilden, an interesting person, trying to kind of make a, an anti-slavery Northern Democrat uh, with good anti-slavery uh, uh, credibility uh, and a, you know good history on that, but but now trying to make a play for uh, for sort of power in the party. Uh, around the fact that he, he and his cohort were anti-slavery and had been anti-slavery. Um, and yet, you know, for a, lot of, for a lot of voters in America at the time, the Democratic Party was, was still the party of slavery, right? right? Mm, definitely. The Republicans, you know, the Republicans were the party of Lincoln, right? Uh, so sort of Emancipation Party. But things were changing in the Republican Party, too, um, so that there, were, there was a move in the Republican Party to get less radical about all that. So Hayes was kind of represented moderation in the party and moderation at that time. I mean, it's a funny word to use because it means to some extent, it means like lightening up on the South, you know? Um, So Hayes and Tilden in a weird way look like moderates, quote unquote, within their parties. Um, And, and, and the, the campaigning, you know, people didn't, presidential candidates didn't openly campaign in those days Mm. so much, but the campaign positions of the parties were not thrillingly interesting. They were kind of like the Republicans were like, you know, the Democrats started the Civil War and uh, we didn't. We're the Republicans. And, uh, you know, we're going to uh, not we're going to we're going to stick with uh, the gold standard and, you know, support yeah. bankers. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Democrats are kind of like, no, we're no longer the party of that. We're northern. And, you know, Tilden's a northern Democrat. That wasn't us. And we, too, are pretty pro banker. Uh, and both both sides sort of also talking about reform, you know, reform and corruption. The Grant administration had been shown to be pretty corrupt, and uh, the Democrats were like, "Look, Republicans are corrupt," but Republicans are like, "No, we're also reformers." You know, it just doesn't sound that interesting. <laughs> under the surface, yeah. under the surface, there's this seething kind of nightmare going on, um, which has to do with race in America and with electoral validity and all these things that really we are dealing with now as well. Um, so that's kind of the setup uh, for what really melted. And it just melted down from, from what 
might have seemed kind of moderate versus moderate, if you were looking at it from a mile-high view or from Mars or whatever, uh, melted down into a complete nightmare. Yeah, so we're not alone. I suppose it's nice to have some precedent here, but then again, this is an ugly precedent. Tell us, please, about the, quote, highly effective and well-organized campaigns of violent voter intimidation back then. Well, there were, you know, again, this is kind of, I mean, of course, what we're seeing now as our election, you know, you and I are talking, our election is, is, you know, we still haven't reached inauguration of a new president. So we're living in suspense today about how things are going and they're not going well. Um, But the interesting thing is that the election itself, I mean, in 2020, despite the claims of the Republican Party, you know, the election was quite secure. Um, And despite the fears of of many uh, Democrats, uh, it did the election day, while it had its problems, did not break down in a total violent mess of voter suppression. There was voter suppression, but there was not uh, the kind of organized paramilitary violence some people feared. And there was not widespread fraud either, as the Republicans claim. Hmm. Um, in 1876, you know, there was all of that. Um, on the one hand, you know, elections, I mean, it's hard to look at now, but I mean, 1876 isn't the only election we can look back at and say, oh, there was, there was fraud and corruption and, you know, fake people voting and all that kind of stuff that didn't happen in 2020 um, did happen. And it happened much more routinely back then. And it certainly hmm. happened in in 1876. But along with that, there was also uh, the Southern paramilitary organizations that had sort of superseded or uh, superseded the Klan because the Klan had been largely shut down. But the interesting thing about the Klan is partly that it was a sort of a secret society uh, type of thing. But the, uh, the, the organizations that came out, uh, the red shirts are one of them. Mm -hmm. And another one's called the white league. Uh, these came out not secretly. They came out openly and they were very organized and very, they, you know, they drilled. And back then, you know, citizen soldiers were a real thing. The, the war had only ended recently and people were kind of more used to actual, actual uh, military rank and order and so forth. We're not really talking, when we talk about the White League and the Red Shirts, we're not talking about uh, rioting so much as actual, you know, armed force mm. uh, with some discipline. And they came out to sort of su- to suppress uh, Republican voters and and, you know, specifically, of course, black voters in the South yes. um, and Republican voters in the South generally. So, you know, it's tense. I mean, the war is not the war is over, but it's there are still troops in some of the southern states. And, you know, it's not you can feel today a civil war mood. We talk about that. Or is this going to turn into a civil war? And if so what would it look like? I mean, back then it was like the civil war, you know, all over again, potentially as this voter suppression started to happen in the South. And one can imagine being occupied. You know, the South was occupied by uh, an invading force, it seemed. And people, the white people then, uh, you know, as you say, who had been uh, used to a military situation, very uh, structured, uh, that was uh, an interesting situation. And, uh, you know, it's... which well, which side were they on actually? Uh, but we we should get to that. But first, you know, like what actually happened with the election? It seems that uh, it was it was unclear as to who really won. There was the as we've heard before, the popular vote versus the electoral vote. Tell us a bit about that, please. 
Yeah, it's partly just one more story of the Electoral College and the popular vote smashing into each other. Um, it has that element to it. Um, so, and again, like, well, actually, like our election this year, because of uh, various factors this year, you know, we didn't get a result as quickly as we might have been. We've been used to getting results. Um, and so it was more like that, because back then you just couldn't get a result that fast. Anyway, so like you, if you have this long period between a very difficult election day with widespread fraud and potential, and not, not just potential violence, but physical intimidation and, and violence. Um, and then you have this, you can't figure out who wins and it goes on for, you know, days and days and then weeks and weeks with everything, you know, communications all being slower back then and so forth. Anyway, um, there's just all kinds of potential, especially because people were more militarized, uh, all kinds of potential for things to, to go, to go south. <laughs> I didn't intend that, but, right. um, but you have things like, well, more than a hundred percent of eligible voters appearing to have cast votes, uh, in some places. And, uh, you've got a Republican, you know, again, with reconstruction sort of officials throwing out democratic ballots, um, because they seem to have been designed to confuse uh, illiterate voters into voting Democrat when they meant to vote Republican. Well, they had been kind of designed that way. Um, and yet I'm not sure that we can say that throwing out the ballots wholesale the way they were thrown out was necessarily legitimate either. Um, so you end up with, and also there was a very high per capita turnout. I think it still holds up as the highest turnout ever, 1876, wow. hmm. uh, over 80% of eligible voters. Although if you're talking about a hundred percent of eligible, more than a hundred percent of eligible voters voting somewhere, well, I don't know what the turnout really was um, in that sense, because, you know, that makes for a high turnout when you have more people than actually exist turning out. Um, put it all together um, in the end, and this was not known to people right away. This is how it would kind of look later. Uh, Tilden won the popular vote. So the Northern Democrat wins the popular vote. Um, very close in the sense that it was about 250,000 votes, I think, um, out of a maybe over uh, over 8 million, a little over 8 million, divided between him and the Republican candidate. And there were others in the race. So, you know, but the two major, major parties. Um, and so he wins. And even though he was an anti-slavery Northern Democrat from way back, um, he wins partly, largely, because of intensely racist, uh, white supremacist, even in a sense, insurrectionist support in the South um, as the Democrat, mm. because they wanted a Democrat. And it, he had a majority, too, with that, that, that low number to us of votes. He had over 50 percent, just over 50 percent, not quite 51 percent. So here we have a Democrat squeaking out a popular, a popular majority only a decade after the Civil War. Um, and largely on the strength of Southern resistance to the, the outcome of the Civil War, right? So that's weird, especially because he was a Northerner uh, and an anti-slavery guy. But he was a Democrat. And at the time, well into the 20th century, Democrats were, you know, the party of the racists, the Southern Democrats uh, in the Senate. They, that was where the racists were. If you were anti-racist, you were Republican, well into the, as I say, 20th century. And a lot of people these days you know, think, well, Hillary Clinton was robbed. She won the popular vote. What the heck? How not that the only case? Well, it's not. Uh, she, she joins the list of five other uh, uh, people who won the popular vote but failed in the Electoral College. Andrew Jackson, Samuel Tilden, Grover Cleveland, 
Al Gore, and now Hillary Clinton. So what happened? So Tilden won the popular vote. What happened? What happened with the Electoral College in 1876? Well, again, now, you know, this... Without books, and I mean, every time I talk about this, I have to actually get out books and look. It's it's quite complicated. Yeah. Um, but but overall, um, because of of the extreme tension uh, between the parties and between the two regions of the country, um, within within certain critical states, there was just a lot of struggle within the states, within the state governments themselves, within state officialdom. And the election seemed like now seemed like one of these, you know, make or break soul of America. Where is this country going kind of election? Mm. Um, and so the, the uh, electoral college kind of as the count went was and also as the count was going on and on systems started to break down. I mean, to the point where uh, within certain states, uh, it wasn't clear whether, you know, conflict might break out again. Um, uh, Hayes. So as this counts going on, Hayes, who actually thought he probably lost the popular vote, and he was right. He saw there was a path possibly for winning in the Electoral College, so he didn't concede. Um, interestingly, sort of the, the non-concession, the long non-concession moment does give us a very unfortunate parallel with today. Indeed. Um, so while, while he's not conceding, well, because this seems like, you know, an existential crisis of which, whose country is this, et cetera, um, the Republicans became pretty sure that uh, uh, that the Democrats were literally stealing the election. Mm. Uh, and um, so now we start to have this, you know, this paramilitary thing becomes, you know, para. I mean, sort of paramilitary, sort of military mm. to the point where uh, President Grant, now a lame duck, but not knowing exactly who his successor is going to be. Uh, takes it seriously enough that he uh, he has the Army and Navy, the U.S. Army and U.S. Navy, come into Washington to secure the Capitol against attack. Um, and he was, you know, it, it wasn't that wasn't sort of an overreaction. I mean, Grant assessed the situation and decided that would be that would be wise. He also uh, told Sherman, who was still in charge of uh, certain U.S. troops in the South, to get those troops ready. You know, make make sure they were prepared. For insurrection in the south the u.s troops that were still in the south and so you've got you know the military kind of digging in in washington to protect you know the way that those those paramilitary groups described themselves or saw, thought of themselves they were like the military wing of the democratic party that was not that that was not something they were trying to keep under wraps that's how they kind of advertise themselves sure. wow. meanwhile you've got tilden who's you know in new york he seems to be the winner of the popular vote um, he's getting all kinds of advice pouring in how he should just, you know, support this violent takeover of the country. Um, he, he, these are his party me- fellow party members. Um, but they're not his people because they're Southern Democrats. And yet he's partly the winner because of them. He's in, a, uh, I think a pretty unusual position in our history as a, as a popular vote winner in that sense, he even considers bringing in McClellan, George McClellan, mm-hmm. uh, the general who had been in the Civil War and while not a very effective general, was uh, very popular, especially with a lot of um, with a lot of he was a Democrat. Yeah. Um, and so he was popular with a lot of anti-Lincoln people and a lot of anti-Reconstruction uh, people. Well, uh, Tilden thinks of, thinks about doesn't do this, but he thinks about bringing McClellan in to become, become like a 
uh, a military uh, leader for him, like a military adjutant as president elect, just in case this thing does turn back into war. So that was pretty intense. And (laughs) um, in terms of the electoral college, again, complicated, a lot of going around and around and not knowing really who won and a lot of arguing within certain states. And then in the end, Hayes wins the, the electoral college, but he wins by one vote. Um, and so again, it's, it's like, it's a very, it's like that the popular vote was close and Tilden won, uh, with a, with a majority, uh, but a bare majority. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Hayes wins the electoral college by a single vote that nobody really believes or can trust. I mean, there's no sense of, of validity to the electoral college vote. Um, and for good reason. So now what, so now what happens now we're up to like, let's say we're up to, you know, January 6th. Um, I'm not sure it was that date, but it, it was, it was, it was whatever the legal date was. Uh, and, um, you know, what, what's going to happen now? Congress is supposed to meet and do what it does on January 6th. Um, there, it's, it's, there's a fear of actual violent attack on, uh, on the Capitol, on Congress. Um, and they just split um, basically on party lines over even ha- how to go about the basic vote count. I mean, they just couldn't they just couldn't do it. They couldn't come to an agreement on how to open those votes. Nobody believed in the election. So now th- so there's an impasse. I mean, literally with a military crisis potentially impending, a far more organized military crisis than we seem to be able to pull off. I mean, I'm knocking wood uh, pull off today. Um, military crisis impending and nobody knowing really who the president is or which party's going to win. Um, there's a, there's a deadlock basically, and there's no constitutional remedy mm. available. Wow. And we thought it was bad. Now for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on keeping democracy alive. We're speaking about a real threat to democracy and uh, to the election. Uh, our guest today is historian William Hoagland, and he's written a piece called The Worst Election in the History of the United States is Not 2020. We're talking about 1876, and there's so much to talk about. Well, what what happened to—and also McClellan, I believe, was the uh, Democratic candidate in 1864 who ran against uh, Lincoln and did not win, obviously. Yeah. Everybody right. knows Lincoln's war led to the end of slavery. The war saw the South defeated militarily, but not in a larger sense. The military victory left an occupying force over the defeated South, and they were not able to restructure the Southern uh, the southern states. The the uh, Reconstruction wasn't going well. Andrew Johnson, who became president after the assassination, openly sympathized with the South and did much to re- reinstate white supremacy. Then came Grant. Why did he choose to not go for a third term, which was his right to do? Oh, yeah, that's a very interesting moment as well. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. That. It's it's a uh, well. First of all, when we think third term back in those days, we tend to think, well, no, of course, no third term. I mean, we don't have them now, right? But, and nobody until FDR right. uh, ran for a third term, and so uh, there's this kind of, I think, there's a widespread idea that gets pushed pretty explicitly that because Washington, as first president, uh, did not seek a third term, did not stand for a third term, um, and stepped down after two. Um, that there was a 
that until FDR broke it, there was an ironclad sort of tradition, ethic even, tradition. that it was just wrong to seek a third term. Um, and and that's, just, that's, that's generally widely believed, but I've, I've been doing some reading on it uh, among scholars who study this kind of stuff much more closely than I do. Um, and there's a lot of interesting scholarship, or well, actually, just a couple things that I've been reading, uh, but there's interesting scholarship showing pretty conclusively that, that that's a bit of a myth. Um, and that, I mean, even Washington, uh, if you look at some of the things he said, he, he wasn't actually opposed in, on general terms, on sort of ethical terms to multiple presidential terms, more than, more than two in every case. He didn't see the presidency that way necessarily. And the Federalists even flirted, I mean, he died, but the, the Federalists even flirted with bringing him back in as a candidate for a non-consecutive uh, third term in, uh, in 1800. So th this, this idea uh, needs to be uh, sort of given some nuance, I think. Grant certainly considered running for a third term, and it wasn't considered shocking that he would consider it. Um, interest, I mean, in fact, he, when he decided not to seek a third term, he felt called upon to explain it in writing why he didn't. Mm. Um, that's how not written in stone that tradition really was. Uh, the reason he didn't, uh, he was sort of talked out of it, I think, by, by party, uh, you know, party regulars. Um, the, the party was not doing well at that moment. There had been a midterm in which the Democrats came in, uh, and he, he was constantly investigated for corruption. He was no longer as popular as he had been. And it, it, he, he, he just didn't, he didn't chance it. He stepped, he took, so, so it ends up being an election. There's no incumbent in the election, you know, as, as happens uh, after a second term now by, by law, yes. um, you know, there might be a, a, an incumbent vice president might run, but no incumbent president's going to run on certain circumstances. But that was actually a, a decision he had to make. It wasn't just set in stone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he could have, but he became a lame duck president, which we have now, whether he knows it or not. And uh, right. <laughs> one of the issues that would have profound effects for the next century and a half was that both parties embraced the gold standard, as you mentioned. This hurt farmers and the working class. They, they, but, but it served, as you said, the big banks. Populism was unintentionally, I think, born from this. In what ways did the debate over currency begin uh, political divisions that, that went forward and that were a significant factor in that election? People sort of, I think, eyes glaze over when they talk about, you know, the gold standard or whatever. But how, yeah. how did that really affect things? Well, it's interesting people's eyes do glaze over. And for me, it's because I think this issue about currency goes back to the beginning. Um, and I really know more about the uh, the early debates over that in uh, in the formation of the country, yeah. and people don't really—I mean, people don't talk about it that much then either. But um, you know, paper has ha when you have a gold standard, um, everything is sort of pegged to gold. So you might issue some currency, some paper, but it's not real money in the sense that its value. Ultimately, you've got to get paid off in metal at the end of the line. And paper currencies had a, a notorious tendency, notorious to some, to depreciate in value. Um, where, and we go back to the to the go back to the revolution. The famous one is the continental currency that did it actually did better for a while than people thought. But the people often say, but by the by the uh, somewhere after a couple of years, I mean it was just like, you know, you you tried to use that in trade just to buy some wheat or to buy some clothes or to buy whatever you're buying, and you're getting it's like five hundred to one at some point by the end. Like you just the face value is just 
means nothing. Uh, horrible depreciation or inflation or whatever you want to call it. But um, so, but but the tendency of paper it doesn't always go the way continental currency went, and the tendency to depreciate um, helps the borrower and hurts the lender. Because of course, the money you've lent out at a certain point, if you're if you're getting paid interest in in paper, and if you're going to get paid back in paper for gold, and if it's going down, the pay value of the paper is going down. Well, then, um, you know, you're you're not collecting the full value of the loan you've made, and the debtor class, we could call them, and the creditor class, uh, yes. we're kind of. I mean, it's a it's a class war essentially mm-hmm. between. Those who are the, have the have the money to lend and can make m- money make money, and those in often desperate need of borrowing uh, just to uh, try to develop your small farm or your small artisan shop or whatever. This becomes you know this this, this problem starts the country actually in, in many ways, yes. um, and it doesn't and it doesn't go away. It, it proceeds. The century became like an open. Uh, political issue, and you end up with, you know, William Jennings, Jennings Bryan making his famous cross of gold speech, talking about gold as actually crucifying the people. Yes. Um, and that, in that sense, big banking and big as and, and also banking was getting bigger, and uh, corporate corporate world was getting bigger all the time. So you have this fight between what we would call, well, actually they called like Eastern banking interests and uh-huh. Eastern corporate interests, uh-huh. and. Um, farmers and laborers, uh, and that fight ends up taking place partly over this issue of gold versus paper, or or gold versus silver, and trying to vary vary the the standards and so forth. And the the fear of the kind of the big money class was always if you get rid of the gold standard, well then, you know, where are we going to be? Ultimately, you know, gold becomes the way you know how much money you have, and you know that's that. If you take it away, which we have since done, um, how how are we going to know? And how are we going to hold? You know, they they saw paper really as almost confiscatory, like government mm. rob. If you have a government currency, it robs the banks uh, of their of their wealth and so forth. So this 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 went on. I mean, this, and this continued well past eighteen seventy six as oh, well. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah it, it, it didn't come to a climax there. Oh, it's been with us, as you say, from the very beginning with, of course, you know, Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellions. And, you yeah. know, who, who does the government serve? The creditor class or the debtor class? And the class war, you know, it goes on and on and on. And again, today's, well, what about vote rigging? What People say, you know, like that more than 100% of the people voted, as you said, and, you know, dead people have voted. One can question the election of 1960 in Chicago, where it was money changed hands there. You know, how did that happen? What about uh, vote rigging? Were all the ballots counted fairly, do you think, in 1876? Was that an issue as well? Uh, I can't imagine that all the ballots were counted fairly. <laughs> In 1876, and I mean, and again, I mean, as, as we're focusing on 76 because of the horror show that that occurred when they reached the deadlock and couldn't come up with a constitutional solution, um, and you know the results of that, which we haven't talked about yet in detail. But um, you know, but to, to move away slightly from 70, 1876, I mean, uh, you know, we we read about. I mean, I just happen to be reviving my interest in. Uh, you know, the Lyndon Johnson situation in Texas, his, his uh, senatorial election. I mean, just I guess because of uh, uh, Trump's calling up, you know, the secretary in Georgia and, um, <laughs> and, and, and trying to find votes. I mean, just find me the votes. Yeah. Well, you know, 
I mean, as, as horrible as it is to listen to the president of the United States doing that, um, trying to find votes when you don't have them uh, has a long tradition. And it's, it's, um, it's just something that we, you know, we, we like to think of our elections as these kind of sacrosanct things. And the fact is, you know, the 2020 election, I mean, I believe from everything I've looked at that it was probably quite a secure election yes. compared to so many in oh. the past, actually. Oh. Um, and so, you know, my, I mean, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson in Texas is calling up some, you know, county party boss to just look, I need a couple hundred more votes here. Come up with them. <laughs> He, I don't think he was deluded and thinking he actually won when he made those calls. I think he was like, oh, damn, I need some votes. Uh, listening to Trump do basically the same kind of criminal thing, which is call up and look for fake votes. He's also at the same time trying to, per, trying to persuade his, his interlocutors, everyone on the call, that, that he actually had an overwhelming victory. I think that's, that was one of those strangest conflicts to me is the way – He's on the one hand living in a delusional world and trying to keep everyone else in it too. And at the same time, trying to do the old school kind of criminal sleaze thing that has been done many times before of finding fake votes. Well, at least. And uh, it's just a strange combination. At least Johnson knew what he was doing, that it wasn't real. He was just, uh, you know, calling in chits. But uh, for those who may have just yeah. been Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a very bad, messy election. Not 2020, 1876. Our guest today is historian William Hoagland. And you mentioned the Constitution. I mean, that's a pretty darn good document, I have to say. But what was, what was the failure here that, that came to it in 1876? The Constitution didn't address what was going on. Is that correct? Well, the Constitution, in many case, parts of the Constitution, uh, as we know, it's kind of skeletal. It's like, here's what you have to do to finish the election. And it's, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's kind of like, you know, get both houses. Both houses have to be present. You know, stuff that we do now. The vice president has to, yeah. you know, the president of the Senate opens it up and counts it out and we see who won and announces the, the, the victor. You know, the, the elections are handled. Uh, famously through the states, not, not by the national government. I mean, the presidential election is, and, um, but it has to finally come into, uh, the Capitol and be sort of, you know, announced as the actual result. And so that's what the constitution says to do, but, um, the, the way to do it, we, we now have post 1876, we now have more specific procedures, um, by law, by title, but, um, they they just couldn't agree on anything because they didn't. I mean, neither side really believed the vote. Uh, it wasn't that one side was saying it's it's a solid great vote and the other side saying no, it's not. It's like nobody believed the electoral college vote, and so they just in the end just kind of split on leak even how to open it and read it out. They couldn't they could not pass the right you know they couldn't pass any resolution to do it. Um, and there is no, you know, you can scour the Constitution looking for the, and this is true about many things, actually. You know, it doesn't self-execute, of course. Uh -huh. you, you can, there's no, people say all, all the time, well, what happens constitutionally when, when in this situation, it's like, well, nobody knows because that situation hasn't come up and the Constitution couldn't possibly contemplate every wrinkle. So they ended up with no constitutional remedy for not being able to have that, that January 6th type event occur. They just couldn't do it. And so, and, and it wasn't just to kind of shrug your shoulders. I mean, you've got people thinking maybe war is about to break out over this. 
Um, so you can't shrug <laughs> and you can't just throw a dart and, you know, people could kill each other and the country could go right back into civil war. This was the fear. And so they had to do something is how they looked at it. And they did what Ted Cruz has proposed should be done about this election. Yes. They kind of made an extra constitutional decision and just said, we need to have a, a group get together from both parties with lawyers and decide who the president is yeah. and, and not do it through the constitutional process, but get together in a group and hash out an answer to this. Make basically make a deal. We need to make a deal. Someone's got to be president. So did, did some of the uh, senators uh, on both sides try to uh, go around the Constitution and have this uh, election commission? I mean, that's what uh, Cruz cited as, as precedent, the electoral election commission. So did was it both sides who wanted to just have, you know, a bunch of smart people get together and decide the election, or was it one side or the other? No, I think both sides, they just came to this point where they're like, we need, I mean, <laughs> we need to make a deal. I mean, there was really, you could say in one way, there was nothing else to do, <laughs> having had such a horrible election. The interesting thing is, in terms of like Cruz citing it as a, uh, as a precedent, I mean, this election in 2020, I mean, you have to believe all kinds of things that aren't true to see the precedent, because uh, you yeah. have to believe that this was a complete meltdown election in 2020, filled with widespread voter fraud and every, and, and uh, you know, it wasn't. Um, you have to believe that, it, that, I mean, the 1876 election was close, right? Even in the real popular vote count, as best we can get it, it was very close. Uh, the electoral college vote in the end was, if you just, if you wanted to believe it or thought it was valid, it was only one vote. Um, that's not the case in 2020 by a mile, you know, by a long shot. Sure. So there's, there's no precedent in the situation. They're trying to manufacture a precedent by saying this is a fraudulent meltdown election and it's. Like if anything, really close. It's not close, and it wasn't fraudulent. Uh, in in eighteen seventy six, it was a, a terrible election uh, with voter suppression and fraud, and it was um, and it was really close. No matter how you look at it, it was so close it was basically a tie in mm. certain ways. So um, that's so. It's, there's no real precedent there, but it's true, as Senator Cruz has said, that they did do this once. They did once do this. They went outside and sort of around the Constitution and came up with a solution. Wow. It, it's interesting to learn that that was a real mess, whereas today, you know, it's somehow a, a total fantasy that it was a mess, that it, was a, it wasn't a mess. It wasn't. And yeah, what, what I find... Kind of a fake mess. Yeah, <laughs> fake mess. Oh, how convenient. I, I, this leads to, you write that you were startled recently to see a remark by Norm Eisen of the Brookings Institution and Protect the Vote, a former Obama appointee, and I believe I saw him on television recently. He said the election of 1876, which bled into 77, quote, turned out just fine. What, what about that startled you? Why is that judgment by someone who's not a Southern racist so disturbing? No, he's anything but, I mean, he's a, he's a liberal Democrat, I believe. I, I don't know where he was coming from there. I, he had been reading a book by H.W. Brands, which by no means, I believe, suggests that everything came out fine in 1876. But I think he was, I mean, I, I, I can't describe motive. It was, it was startling because the way I see 1876 coming out, you know, as they began to think, oh, we have to make a deal here. Well, they did. 
Um, and the, the last thing I can see it as, and I don't think, I don't, I'm not alone in this. I mean, the historians that I read, I think, would mostly agree, would all agree, that, uh, that nothing about 1876 came out just fine. Uh, I think Eisen was trying to say, don't worry, this election's secure, it's going to be fine, that we've had tough elections before, and for example, 1876, hotly contested, and it's going to, this 2020 will come out in the end just fine too, but it's a, it's a, you know, I mean, Senator Cruz picked it as a, as a precedent, and I think it's a weird precedent for Eisen to pick as well as, 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 as a precedent for something that came out just fine, because um, when they got together to make that deal, I, I think the, the effects are pretty harrowing to consider. Um, not only did they, did they, not only were they going around the constitution because they didn't really have any choice, I guess about right. that. I mean, I don't know. Um, but the, you know, it's a back room, it's a back room deal made by party regulars from both parties to install, essentially install a president. Um, and they did. And we know that Tilden was not the president. We know that Rutherford B. Hayes was the president. So that the deal was made to, um, to put the moderate Republican in over the Democrat who had actually won the popular vote, put in the moderate Republican quote unquote moderate who had won the electoral college barely. And, um, in that sense, okay, it's an electoral college story because the winner of the electoral college uh, went in as, as opposed to the winner of the popular vote. And that's you know how the system is supposed to work, actually, in those cases that you just mentioned. Um, and people can argue about whether that's a good system, but that is how it's supposed to work. So in that sense, they sat down and made a deal to put in the winner of the electoral college, although nobody really was confident that any of that stuff was, was real. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had to make a deal to do that. It uh-huh. wasn't just like, oh, okay, this seems right. Uh, everyone had to give up something. I mean, uh-huh. and uh, the Democrats basically agreed to seat a Republican uh, in exchange for pulling the final U.S. troops out of the South. And that's a dramatic watershed moment in American history because I think you know, the people I read uh, who've looked into this more closely than I have, I, I think some some will say, you know, and that's what ended Reconstruction. That's what ended Reconstruction, i.e. that's what began Southern, the whole system of Southern segregation uh, starting in the late 19th century and developing all the way up through, you know, with, with ramifications, of course, today. Yes. But I mean, legal segregation until, the, you know, the 60s or 1960s, really. Um, so... Um, in that sense, now, now others might say, well, that's not very nuanced. You know, there were already troops being pulled out of the South. Uh, Hayes was a moderate Republican in the sense that he was part of the, 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 the coming on part of the party, which was actually opposed to radical reconstruction and was trying to kind of already trying to lighten up on the South. So it's not like this one deal actually was the, was the thing that, that changed everything that was already changing. It's more like this, this deal put a seal on something that was already underway. Uh. But in fact, it was a deal to pull troops out of Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina, um, and effectively end, uh, any, any attempt really by the federal government to, to enforce, um, equality, racial equality, uh, below the Mason Dixon in the former Confederate States, you know, um, the 13th Amendment had been passed. 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were not to be enforced by the federal government. The federal law was not to be enforced uh, in the South. And that, if you look at that, if you look back at that moment as the place where that was, that was, that deal was made, 
you can look back, you know, from our own lifetimes right now and uh, the world that we kind of were born into and are dealing with, you know, all of the, that whole, you know, sort of system of violence against black Americans yes. was, was, was kind of born there in that sense. I think it's fair to say that. And um, so, you know, turned out okay. No, uh, definitely yeah. not to my, I don't think to anybody, I don't think anyone thinks it turned out okay anymore, except maybe, you know, I, I, well, I guess if certain Trumpists uh, ever heard of the 1876 election, they might think it turned out okay. But I don't think it's, it doesn't seem like something that I think Norm Eisen on reflection would imagine would turn out, turn out okay. And, um, and so, so that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big horror show coming out of an American election, I think. And it's, it's, it, to me, it seems, I mean, the term legitimate, what the heck does that mean? Was it legitimate? There was a backroom deal. I don't know if money was changed hands or what, some kind of backroom deal. Hayes did become president. So in that way, I suppose it had the mantle of legitimacy to it. I don't really know. But it's, it's, and the South, I've long thought that the South was defeated militarily, but not politically. Their values have continued and they continue to this day. You look at the map of Georgia between the two Democrats and the two Republicans, and it was like there's these islands of, uh, of the North surrounded by big red territory that's, that's still the Confederacy. And so it does seem like, if I got this right, that the 1876 compromise really uh, kind of uh, laid the groundwork for the, you know, legitimacy, if you will, of racist Jim Crow South for many years to come. Wow, ugly stuff. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair to say. I mean, one of the ways I look at it, uh, especially as a northern white person like me. Um, I mean, I was born in Virginia, actually, but I grew up in New York. Um, as a as as a white person looking at this, um, who grew up in a northern state, I mean, I you know, I, I one of the things that really strikes me is I think you can look at it at the moment when it was a kind of agreed that the white North would abandon the black South, and so. Uh, of course, there's many, many things to look at about the Southern culpability, because of course, that's where the system developed in its most egregious form. That's where those systems of violence prevail for generation after generation. But I also think that, you know, it's incredible to think about to me, I just, you know, think about it all the time and still can't get used to the idea that those amendments were, were passed, uh, and and and, and uh, you couldn't even rejoin the union really as a Southern state unless you signed on to them. Um, and then, you know, in how, how few years it took yeah. for that to all turn around and for the, for the white, for the white North, for the federal government and the white North to just simply say, no, we're not in that business anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and what begins here is not only Jim Crow and all of that, uh, what begins is the lost cause narrative yes. of the Southern, of the sort of noble, the noble Confederacy, mm -hmm. what begins is the kind of almost hands across the hands across the Mason Dixon line, white North and white South kind of getting back together, driven largely by white, uh, by Northern white people who had been extremely committed during the civil war to defeating the South. Um, and some of them had been extremely committed to racial equality. Yeah. Uh, and yet 10 years later, you know, 10, 15 years later, you're just not seeing that nope. from the same people. And I, I think that's one of the, dramatic uh, things to look at that I think a lot of Northern white people 
still today don't look at because we have a sense that the North, of course, are the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the Civil War, uh, okay, but you know, then then things go on and things change, and that that whole narrative of the noble. You know, Lee as a noble character is partly um, developed by northern intellectuals. And, you know, Americans, we get bored. You know, we've done that. Oh, we already did that. We freed the slaves. So let's let's go on to the next issue. Boy, a lot of people pay. What about the, the Freedmen's Bank, which was a place for the emancipated people, the formerly enslaved, to hold and protect their money? What happened with that under this 1876 compromise? Well, I don't think it was, I don't know what happened in those, in, you know, in every point of that deal. Nobody does, by the way. No, I mean, this is all sort of extrapolated, you know, not by me, but by, you know, people who study more closely. I'm not, making, I'm not coming up with this myself, but it all has to be kind of extrapolated what the deals were because it was a backroom deal. Um, it was not, doc, it wasn't really documented in the, in the and so I, I wouldn't associate necessarily the uh, the failure of the Freedmen's Bank with this particular deal, but I do think when, when we're looking at like what what forces flow into um, not only the creation of the whole system of segregation, but also the long history of um, Black Americans' economic disadvantage uh, long after emancipation. Um, one of the things that was also going on at the same time, so we can connect it, but it, it was going on anyway. I'm not going to blame it all on this one election. Mm-hmm. Is that the Freedmen's Bank was essentially, I mean, uh, essentially robbed by the big financial interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is not a thing you can you can lay on. There's a there's a a lot of blame to go around. Um, mm-hmm. This is not like oh the Southerners oh the Southerners then stole all that money. I mean, no, that was not a Southern project. Exactly. Um, there's a, I, th- I've been struck by the fact that again, people, it's because people's eyes glaze over when you talk about money, strangely, since yeah. money's so important <laughs> on everyone's mind all the time, um, has to be. But when you talk about these, these financial issues and economic issues, people do get sort of bored, but, um, W E B Du Bois really said clearly, like this was the, the failure of the Freedmen's Bank, one of the places he says something like this was this was the thing. I mean, this is this is what turned everything around and made it. And and, you know, you, you can trace everything back to slavery, but you can also trace things back to Reconstruction came later. Like, like let's go past slavery and look at where where the uh, where the violence was done. Uh, and you can see it after after the institution is over. Um, I think somewhere he says something like uh, something like the 13th Amendment was almost like the the consolation prize for losing all the money, all the money. Yeah. Um, and uh. without the, without the money, of course, over generations, without the wealth, I mean, you, you we've seen what happened. And people who are really good scholars of that traced it very closely. The, uh, and so I think that's, that's something that begins there. And mm. I'm stunned when I see like, um, even professor Gates's uh, long series on, on reconstruction on uh, public broadcasting, uh-huh. which was, you know, very interesting in many ways. Um, I, I was struck by the fact that the Freedmen's Bank did not come up. Oh, interesting. And without uh, money, what, what... Its failure seems like, seems crucial, really. What, what kind of freedom is there if you don't have money, you know, if, if your money mm-hmm. is taken away from you? So was it the case? We don't know exactly what happened in this back room. Hayes became president. Was 
was this basically just accepted by the white people of America as a fair price for calming things down after the disputed election? I mean, did the black people, you know, suffered a bit as a result from this, suffered a lot. It's been called a typhoon of terror that happened, uh, you know, after this and went well into the 20th, 20th century. But was this just seen as a fair price to pay and that, uh, oh, we just have to get down to business and let's just not hash it again, just accept it? Yeah, I don't think it happened overnight uh, that everything kind of uh-huh. settled down. Uh-huh. And certainly uh, Southern paramilitary violence never settled down. Right. It didn't have to because <laughs> it wasn't going to be suppressed by uh, government, by federal government. Um, but... Um, yeah, my feel, my my overall sort of you know broad stroke feeling is kind of like yeah, this was an unbearable crisis for white America to deal with, and so when it was resolved, it was you know there was a big sigh of relief. One could say it wasn't like overnight, but you could see the next, you know, you can see the next uh, the rest of the century really uh, closing out the rest of the century as kind of a big sigh of relief in yeah. all sects of white America that we were not going to go back to civil war. Because mm. um, that wasn't totally clear. Uh, really, that's, I think that's one of the things that, that wasn't totally clear until the 1876, you know, grand compromise. People love grand bargains and grand compromises. This is like probably one of the worst ever. Um, but I think for for the country, and when we say the country, you know, when I was growing up, we would, oh, well, the country felt, began to feel, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, we're really talking about the white part of the yes. country here to a great degree. <laughs> When we, say the, when we used to say the country. Um, but yeah, I think it resolved the issue um, at the time and for a long time to come of whether we were ever going to actually arm up and go to sort of sectional civil war again. It wasn't totally clear that we weren't until this deal was made. Um, and the beneficiaries of that, I think you could say, was a, a lot of white America, both North and South. And the white supremacists made out okay too. It seems like they sort of got a, a wink and a nod to uh, to go ahead mm-hmm. with uh, with their uh, violent racism. Well, do you think this mad coup attempt by the Trump Republicans? It's I think it's over. And now that I think it is, there's still a lot of the Trumpists out there, like the South. You know, they were defeated, but they're not giving up. They've made it clear that they're not giving up. Do you think our electoral system will be stronger, as as President-elect Biden said, we're going to build back better? What What are your thoughts? Is our electoral system strengthened by the uh, violence of January 6th, 2021? Wow, I don't know. I don't know what <laughs> is going to happen in the future. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think it is worth looking at the fact that uh, a couple of things. One, we've been talking, you know, you and I in this conversation are, are taking it as given because we've thought it through, I think, that, you know, that we, that we had a pretty secure election and day. And that's under a lot of pressure. I mean, I went to some polling places in Pennsylvania. Um, I live in New York, but I, I went to some of the eastern counties in Pennsylvania just to sort of I, I wanted to see what was going on. I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And there was a, a definite move to protect the vote because there was a sense that, it, you know, that uh, oh, yeah. voter intimidation violent, you know, potentially. Um, I, I drove around and just caught a vibe in uh, Republic, places that had gone for Trump in, in 16. Uh, and it was just quite, I mean, what I saw, this is just anecdotal, but mm. it, it, it fits with a lot of reports from other people as well. Uh, what I saw was just a kind of a placid, 
I mean, strange, long lines, COVID, but, but a kind of fairly placid election day mm-hmm. when we thought, I mean, we might have thought it was all going to melt down right there, and it yes. didn't. True. Um, and in fact, I don't believe there was widespread fraud at all. No. Um, I know there's voter suppression because many of the states are kind of designing their processes around it. I'm not denying that. Right. But in terms of the whole thing melting down, no, I think we got a pretty strong pretty strong uh, res- uh, result and a pretty uh, and a quite a credible result, despite what the Republicans are saying. And at the same time, um, you and I are speaking uh, the day, I think, not only after a violent attack on the Capitol by Trump people, but also with Georgia um, yes. having flipped for the Democrats and the first black senator from Georgia, Amazing. Uh, I think ever. I mean, I was thinking, yes. well, maybe during Reconstruction, but I don't think even then Georgia sent one. No, um, and one of the few ever, uh, certainly since Reconstruction, uh, from the former Confederate states, that's going back a long way now. Yeah. Um, so that's good, right? Yeah. I mean, that's great. <laughs> Um, so I don't know how strong the electoral system is uh, right now or how, or I don't know, but I mean, there's some, some good things have happened. I don't know what's going to happen next. One never knows. Well, as, as I've, listeners are probably tired of hearing me say, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history, but we can. <laughs> if people, fascinating stuff, always good to read your stuff. If people are interested in reading more of what you have to say, Mr. Hoagland, what can you point them to on that internet thingy? Oh yeah. Well, I've started a, a newsletter type of thing um, in which I'm just, uh, it's called uh, Hoagland's bad history. Uh, and you can find that easily on Substack. Uh, my name, uh, which is H O G E L A N D William Hoagland. Uh, and you'll find that easily. Um, what I'm trying to do in that, in that, uh, through that channel is, is try to read some of the past into the present crisis and, uh, some weird things that emerge when you when you do that. Um, some of the stuff's funny, some of it's harrowing. Uh, some of it's as harrowing as the stuff we're talking about today. Other stuff is just bizarre. Um, but if you look at the past through the current crisis, or look at the pa- uh, current crisis through the lens of the past, American past, uh, a lot of ironies and strangenesses uh, will appear. So I'm, that's what I'm doing right there. And then. Uh, yeah, that's my main internet thing at the moment. I'm also sometimes fairly active on Twitter. It's very important, I think, for people to try to learn from history and to see what's happened before. Because this, I mean, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. There's a lot of background for that. Yeah, that's right. William Hoagland, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. And boy, it is a group effort to keep democracy alive. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Bert. And now some music from 1876. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. 